Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the lead pastors here at the District Church. Are we missing something? Hold on, guys. Not coming through real quick. Yep, can you hear me? All right. All right. Week 14 on how we are church planning in quarantine. Uh, my name is Josh, one of the lead pastors here at the District Church, and we're so thankful for you guys joining us and uh, worshiping through song, uh, as well as hearing God's word preached and receiving the grace that he has uh, given to us. Uh, one of the things I want to do this morning um, in recognizing that we have been providentially hindered in gathering on Sunday mornings um, is try to create a sense of community that we would normally have on Sundays when people would be able to gather. So what I want you guys to do, um, if you can, is take out your phones and actually go ahead and text two or three people that are not a part of your community group uh, and just say, how can I pray for you? Or, hey, what's going on? How's life? I miss seeing you. Again, we recognize that you would be able to do this on a Sunday morning um, and just be able to see those people you're not in communication with or in community group with. Um, so let's try it. If it doesn't work this week, we'll try something new next week. Uh, but we want to try to get creative in this to be able to have community like we would normally have. So while you're going ahead and doing that, also, let's do this as well. If you don't go to this church and not connected to a community group, that's fine as well. We want you to participate. Text somebody that you know from this church, maybe somebody who's invited you uh, or a family member you might know, uh, and just say, hey, praying for you, love you. Um, but go ahead and do that. And while you're doing that, I want to just give a quick shout out to those who led us in liturgy uh, this morning. Uh, Julia, thank you for what you're doing with our kids, coming alongside our parents and laying that kindling of the gospel down. We are praying that the Holy Spirit lights the fire so these kids grow up knowing the Lord and loving Jesus. Thank you for leading us in a prayer of the city for our teachers and our schools and those students. We know that you have a love and a passion for that. Thank you to the halls leading us in worship. And thank you for Abby leading us in our time of confession. You guys are a gift to our church, and we are so thankful for you. So if this, um, if this service, if you, if you remember uh, where we've been the last couple of weeks, or if you don't remember in this service where we've been the last couple of weeks, uh, we are continuing to walk through the chapter in Ecclesiastes that Solomon has asked the question, what is good for man in his life? Um, and it's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, we're going to be completing this chapter, starting in verse 15, but still answering that question that he gave us in verse 12. If you don't remember from a couple weeks ago, when walking through this chapter, he asked this question, for who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life? And those 14 verses that we looked at two weeks ago gave us a, a category of how to live and the character in which we should pursue as wise men and wise women. And really it came down to this. Our, our foundation for life is living in light of the sovereignty of God. Uh, all the things that happen, uh, whether it is adversity or joy, uh, we should recognize that it is under God's sovereign good plan for our lives, and we should trust his wisdom and his mercy and his grace, no matter if we can't see 
or know what's going on in front of us. So if you remember that, um, I, I want us to kind of have that in our minds as we go through this week's chapter starting in verse 15. Because two weeks ago we talked about character in light of God's sovereignty. Today we're going to talk about circumstances in light of God's sovereignty. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to that chapter in that verse. Um, and while you're doing that as well, uh, I wanna just kind of give you the title as well as three things that we're gonna take a look at this week uh, that really, it's kind of baptisty, so get ready for it, uh, but it's the three L's of life, or as I've entitled this sermon, Embracing the L's of Life. And this is how we're gonna take a look at God's sovereignty and our circumstances and how we can live as wise men and wise women. So the first L looks like this. Life doesn't always make sense. The second L is that life has limitations. And the third L is that there are life lessons that we can learn from this passage to help us govern how we see this world. So if you're writing down or taking notes, uh, those three L's again look like this. Life is not always fair. Life has limitations. And there are life lessons we can learn as we walk through this world and trust in the sovereignty of God. So let's pray, and then we'll take a look at what Solomon has to say for us this morning. Lord, you are good, and we are so thankful that even though in the midst of this quarantine, even, even though in the midst of not being able to gather on the Sunday mornings like we normally have, we can still come together virtually and hear your word preached, hear the songs sung, and come and praise your name, Lord. We thank you that we have the ability to do this. We thank you for this common grace of technology. Lord, help it to humble us. Help it to, help it to make us have a longing to, to know that we will one day be worshiping again together. And Lord, help it to also allow us to see in the future that one day this reality of worshiping together will be uh, for eternity. Help us have that longing to be in eternity worshiping you with our brothers and sisters in Christ where there will be no more sin, where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more adversity, but it'll just be perfect peace. And as your word says, shalom, that we can enjoy together. Thank you that we have this promise in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So if you'll take a look, starting in verse 15, we're going to see what Solomon has to say when he tells us life doesn't always make sense. He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Growing up in the 90s, we used to have this block of TV shows that would fall under TGIF, or Thank God It's Friday. And some of those shows would include Full House, Tool Time, Family Members, Step by Step, um, and my favorite, uh, Boy Meets World. Now, I know for some of you, you might not know these shows, uh, but I would go uh, implore you to go and look them up. They're great shows. Um, but again, my favorite being Boy Meets World, oftentimes you would find Corey, the uh, main 
actor in this show would be walking through things in his life that didn't seem fair. And there was often a phrase that when he realized life wasn't fair that would be said to him and was led by him being hit in the head. And that phrase, and it also made its way through my house, is that life's rough, get a helmet. And then he would get hit in the head. And Solomon is trying to show us here this reality of life, maybe not so comedic, but he's trying to tell us that life is rough and that we need to be prepared for this truth because life doesn't always make sense. Solomon, in his acknowledgement of seeing all that he has seen, testing all that he has tested, tried to look through wickedness and folly, through wisdom and knowledge, comes to this observation that the righteous die in their righteousness and the wicked prolong their life in their evil doing. And this is a reality. If you live long enough, you understand and recognize this truth. As Sir William Joel is partially correct in saying, the good do die young. And we see this. Sometimes missionaries go to countries that don't have the gospel to preach that gospel and they end up being killed. Church planners who love the Lord go to countries that have closed the gospel off and are beaten and bruised and imprisoned because of their faith. Women who are healthy, who love Jesus, who by all the world's standards live a life that follows a diet that they would see as being of good health, die of cancer. We see in this life that the righteous can die in their righteousness, and it doesn't seem fair. But Solomon is also saying that life isn't just about those who die young. We see that there are righteous men who create businesses and lose it all because of a pandemic or because of something that happens to them that they didn't do themselves. We see that churches close. We see that believers get cancer a second and third time. We see that slander and gossip ruin reputations for the Christian. Solomon is trying to show us this reality that the, righteousness, the righteous often die in their righteousness and it doesn't seem fair. He goes on to say that the wicked prolong their lives. Here's his frustration. It's the same frustration as Abby read in Psalm 73 this morning that Asaph realized when it comes to the wicked. He's frustrated. He almost loses his way. He's complaining that the wicked continue in their wickedness and no one seems to stop them, and yet the righteous die in their righteousness. If you've lived long enough, you too know and can agree with this observation of life that Solomon gives. And it's maddening. It doesn't make sense. And he's trying to prepare us for life under the sun. Now one of the things that I want to kind of bring to light here this morning in light of Solomon's observation is this. Um, I, I think that the world around us has uh, crept in a little bit in the church, and maybe not even a little bit, maybe a lot in our own lives. And it's the, this, this reality or this idea that karma exists, that if I do good, then I will receive good, or if I do bad, then I am going to receive bad or evil. 
And I think that we've allowed this either Western thought or a secularist idea to infiltrate our thinking of God, that if we do good, that he's just going to bless us, but if we do bad, then we receive retribution. And so we should live on this charism, well, let's just say karma type of lifestyle, trying to create words here. And we have to be careful as believers to have a reality of life that God doesn't operate this way. We have to be careful to not live and teach from our lives that if we just do the right thing, that life and everything in it will be good for us. This isn't the reality of life. This isn't the reality of the word of God. And so we must get away from this idea. This isn't the truth And we're setting ourselves up for failure when we place these expectations on life that it operates this way. And more importantly, when we try to set expectations to God that this is how life should be. Paul shows us in Acts 17, this is not the reality at all when it comes to God, the creator of the universe. When he speaks to the Athenians at Mars Hill, he tells them a three-point sermon. He tells them that God has no needs, he cannot be manipulated, and guess what? He doesn't need you. So what can you or I do to ever earn his blessing is what he says. He isn't some type of genie that's just going to give you three wishes if you're good enough. He is the God of the universe. He gives life. He sustains life. And all things come from him. Now what I want you to know is this doesn't mean that God isn't one who doesn't draw near. He isn't a God that doesn't respond to us. He isn't a God that doesn't delight in his children. He does, in fact, do all of these things. But he doesn't do it out of some intrinsic need. He does it out of his own volition, of his perfect will. He does it because he is perfect and he is good. He doesn't do it because he can't foresee the future He doesn't do it because he's lost control of things, that he's abandoned his sovereignty, that he is psychologically damaged, that he needs something. No, he does it out of his perfect attribute, his perfect character. He shows love, he shows grace, he shows mercy, he responds to us, he draws near to us. He is the God who is there. This is the truth that we have to dive into. This is the truth that we have to root ourselves in, not some karmic belief that if we just do good, then we will receive good. Friends, I I think that that's a dangerous mentality that we often can live in, and we set ourselves up for failure when we believe this lie. I also think that there is a understanding or maybe a, a, a underlying foundation that we believe that we are inherently good and when evil comes, this is an affront against our goodness as if this shouldn't be happening because we are good. But what Solomon is trying to tell us is that the same thing that Job tells us is that the rain comes for the just and the unjust alike. And sometimes it's very hard to live in a reality that we don't know why this is happening. And I think the danger is not asking questions of why this is happening, 
but expecting or putting ourselves in a place where we demand an answer from the Lord. Job's problem wasn't that he had questions of why his suffering was coming or came. Job didn't get rebuked for those questions. What Job got rebuked for was believing that he had the right to know why God did what he did or why God allowed what he allowed. And he ultimately put himself up or at least tried to put himself up in the place of God to receive these answers. So I think that we need to be careful in times of adversity, when suffering comes, I think we need to be careful to not try to demand answers from the Lord. Solomon is trying to teach us this truth. And he also gives us some counsel here in verses 16 through 18. He tells us, when you see this, that life doesn't make sense, don't be overly wise. Don't be overly righteous. But he also says, don't be overly wicked, nor be a fool. What he's not saying here is to live a balanced life that dabbles in some righteousness and some wickedness. He's not saying, because I can't control my life, I might as well just live for the moment, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow I'm going to die. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is, don't live overly righteous and we know this, don't be a Pharisee. Don't have a vain affection for the things of the Lord. Don't allow your religion to just be external. But he's also saying, resist wickedness. Just because you can't control your world doesn't mean that you should live thoughtlessly and carelessly is what he's saying. The Bible never advocates this. In fact, the Bible is very much against this. There's a whole book in the Old Testament called Judges where the refrain, and this is not a good refrain that happens to this book, but the refrain through this book says everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. There's a condemnation of the people of God and how they were living. The Bible doesn't advocate for thoughtless and careless living. The New Testament goes on to tell us this as well, as Paul tells us in Romans 1, that God hands people over in their old, own wickedness because this is where they are desiring to go. Solomon is trying to warn us against this careless, reckless living. But he's also trying to warn us against the overly righteous type of living. And I think uh, I've been in church enough to see that this is more often than not, excuse me, where we tend to land. Now, I, I do believe that because there is sin within our lives that we can stray into, if we don't pay attention, we can stray into wickedness. We can stray into an offensive, rebellious sin against God. But what I've found is most often in church is that we live with a vain affection for the things of the Lord. We live with a vain affection for the things of the Lord. And the irony is that we live this way, this external way of living to try to show that we are good and right and we do the right things because we need to live morally. The reason that we do this is to have this perception that we have it all together. And the irony is we, we live like this trying to not be perceived like the Pharisees. Yet Paul tells us in Romans 10, 2, that the problem with the Pharisees was not that they knew too much, but it's in fact they didn't know enough. 
they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And so they had a zeal for the Lord. They had this external pursuit of God, but their hearts were not transformed by the things of the Lord. In reality, to be over-righteous in the proper sense of the phrase is not something that we can actually be. We can never be overly righteous if our hearts are humbled by the things of the Lord and that we are abiding in him. Dwayne has a, a good article that we're going to put up on our website this week, uh, multiple different steps that you can take to help abide in the Lord from John 15. We cannot be overly righteous with our praise and worship or our doctrines and theology if they have the right object. This is what Paul's getting after in Romans 10. The right object is Christ, fixing our eyes on him. The danger is not excess, guys. Here's what it is. It's in stopping short or not going far enough. It's not practicing these disciplines that saints from years before us have practiced of getting in God's word, of praying, of being in community, being vulnerable, allowing the word of God to shape you and mold you, as the psalmist says, meditating on the word of God day in and night so that that word can be on your heart so that you might not sin against God. This is what Solomon is saying in being overly righteous, is having an, a, vain, a vain affection for the Lord. This is the problem of the Pharisees. My, my fear is that we can do the same. My fear is that we can become like the Pharisees that have an appearance of righteousness, but no true foundation in pursuing the right knowledge of God. J.T. English goes on to say, if you increase in your knowledge of God, if you increase in your relational communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is no greater knowledge to have Paul says in the first chapter of Colossians, as you grow in your knowledge of God, then you will walk in a manner worthy of him, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. What Paul is trying to show us in this chapter is there is a practical relationship between our fellowship, our communion, our increasing knowledge of God, and the daily Christian life of bearing fruit increasing in good work, and enduring all things with patience and joy. There is a connection there. This is how we avoid having a vain affection for the Lord. And wonderfully, as the Holy Spirit knows how to sanctify us through his word, he shows us through Solomon's words in verse 18, how do we do this? How do we avoid being overly righteous and overly wicked? We fear the Lord. We have a humility about, a, about who God is and what he says about his character and his attributes. As a church, I think we've talked a lot about this idea of fearing the Lord, and so I'm not going to take too much time on it. But when it comes to avoiding both, this is how we can pursue God. This does not mean that we have a cringe-fearing attitude of God like Ransford has with mountain lions. This is a fear of God that recognizes that he is holy and righteous and just, that he is our judge as well as our only hope. There lies the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs 1 tells us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise this wisdom. 
To have a right sense of how to live under the sun must begin with this understanding, this fear of God that leads us to true wisdom. This is how we avoid both overly righteous and overly wicked living. And Solomon goes on to tell us that there are limitations here in life. He tells us that wisdom is good, but it has its limits. He tells us righteousness is good, but it has its limits. Here's what he says, starting in verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise. More than 10 rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does not do good and never sins. Do not take to heart all things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? Solomon tells us that just because there's a danger of becoming overly wise doesn't mean that wisdom isn't good for us or has no value. In fact, the whole refrain of chapter 7 is to pursue wisdom. And we find this refrain happening throughout this book of Ecclesiastes that wisdom is the one to pursue. We'll see this in the next coming chapters. But this wisdom that he talks about has an understanding that when I get to the end of it, I'm going to know that I still don't have all the wisdom that I need. He says this in verse 23. It's, it's too deep for me to understand. John Calvin calls this a wise ignorance. He goes on to say, where you acknowledge that God has revealed to us and taught us a variety of things in wisdom, we want to be wise as we can with this knowledge, but when we come to the end of our wisdom, we recognize that there is a ton more that we are ignorant about. Isn't this true? As we grow up, as we begin to have more knowledge and more wisdom, we start to realize that there's more and more that we don't know. There's limitations in life. Solomon also goes on to say that righteousness is good, but it has its limits. Solomon shows us here in verse 20 that there is a perfect standard that no one can live up to. Every one of us are flawed, and every one of us are sinful, and every one of us are broken. Paul reminds us of this in Romans chapter 3. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The truth of this reality should humble us. And it should humble us in how we respond to those who sin against us. That's the example that Solomon gives in 21 and 22. In verse 20, he tells us that no one is perfect. And then he says, if you think that you are, what you should do is listen to how others speak about you. Here's a perfect application. If you want to think that you're perfect, go speak to your spouse or somebody who is close to you and ask them, am I perfect? And if they tell you yes, then you need to leave them because they're lying to you. <laughs> Solomon says there's no one that is perfect. But Solomon points out something here for us to understand in light of the cross. In verse 21, he says, we should recognize that we too have spoke bad about others. And that should humble us when someone speaks bad about us. What he is portraying to us is that we should be able to extend mercy to those who need it because we have received a greater mercy in the cross. 
We have received a great mercy and grace from God in the forgiveness and reconciliation of our sins. And having that humility helps us to be able to extend mercy to others. I'm reminded of a parable in Matthew 18. Peter asks, how often should we forgive someone? And Jesus' response is 70 times 7. And on the heels of that answer, he tells them, this is what the kingdom is like. There's a king who wants to settle his accounts with his servants, and one man owed a great debt, and he asked and pleaded for forgiveness, and that king showed him mercy and forgave that debt. And that servant went back into town, and he had someone who owed him a small debt. And what did that servant do? He demanded that that man repay him, and until he did, he's going to have him thrown in jail. And the king found this out, that the servant was acting wicked. And he had him thrown in jail. And this is what he says to this servant. You sh- should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And this parable and what Solomon says here in chapter 7 illustrates the wisdom of our fallen reality as sinners and the mercy that has been extended to us in order for us to be able to extend mercy to others. As one pastor puts it, remember that love, along with our knowledge of our own sinfulness, covers a multitude of sins. When you deal with sin, and hear me, we are called to deal with sin. We are called to deal with sin in others, in our own lives. When people sin against us, we are called to deal with it. And I'm not telling you that it's always going to be easy. But there should be a humility in recognizing that we too are a part of this broken reality. This pastor goes on to say, as we deal with it, we need to deal with it from the vantage point that we, we need to deal with it not from the vantage point that we have never sinned, but we deal with it as fellow participants in this broken and fallen world who is dependent upon the grace of God to help someone else see something that they might not see because God in his grace has helped us to see it for them. Guys, we need to have a humility that is rooted in the fact that we have been reconciled to God and the mercy and grace that has been extended to us, we can then extend to others because we too are participants in this broken reality. But Solomon goes on to show us that wisdom and righteousness, while they are good attributes, have their limitations. And they have their limitations in this. We can be wise, we can be righteous, but they cannot save us. They cannot save us. And because they can't save us and they can't reconcile us back to God, we need something that is greater than them, that is outside of ourselves, a greater righteousness, a greater wisdom that needs to come in order for us to be reconciled back to God. And we'll get, that, we'll get to that in a minute. Finally, Solomon gives us life lessons to govern how we are to look at this world. Look what he says in verse 25. He says, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. 
One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Before we get to the three lessons that Solomon gives us, I want to really quickly give some background on what is being said here. Because it can sound like Solomon is a chauvinist and doesn't think highly of women, and therefore, because it's in Scripture, we can think that the Bible doesn't think highly of women, and this is not true. This is not what's happening here. Solomon is using Hebrew parallelism to point out and to show that no one pleases God completely. The word man and the word woman are used in its generic form to show that both parallel the fact they cannot please God on their own. We see this in Proverbs 1 through 9 as Solomon depicts the wisdom of a woman and the, the folly of a woman. These are two depicted characters. And this is how often Solomon uses these parallels. The idea is not that one out of a thousand males please God, but no woman can please God. Or that no woman is devoted to God. That's simply not true. He's just trying to draw a parallel between man and woman. Because this, this passage taken out of context, this is the reason why I want to, to draw your attention to this, is this passage taken out of context can lead to a bizarre thought about women who pursue God. It's simply not true. It's an inaccurate depiction to think that women can't. That a th one out of a thousand men, which is a very small percentage, to be honest with you, but this is not what Solomon's trying to do. Because honestly... If you just look through other wisdom literature, go to Psalm 45. See the princess that inclines her ear to the Lord. Proverbs 31 shows us the righteous woman. The New Testament shows us this as well. We've got in Luke 8, the women who help Jesus' ministry, single women, by the way, who are devoted to Jesus' ministry. The Bible is littered. I can go on and on about examples from the word of God that show us devoted women to God. Martin Luther, writing about this idea, about the godly devoted woman, said this. this. He says this. There is nothing on earth so lovely as a woman's heart with God's grace to guide its love. And all of you husbands out there, if you need that, I'll, I'll email it or text it to you for like Valentine's Day, Mother's Day. You just want to give your wife a shout out. I can give it to you. But the Bible is not depicting here in Solomon's words that there aren't women that are devoted to the Lord. He's drawing a parallel between the reality of mankind. And the three lessons he gives us here, starting in verse 26, the first one is this. Sin is destructive and seductive. He uses this example of an adulterous woman, again, just like in the Proverbs, saying that folly and wickedness is like this woman. But the one who follows the woman of wisdom pleases the Lord and gets away from this destruction. Now, it's not just that women can be seductive or in sexual sin. This, this goes to men as well. This isn't just a specific example that Solomon is trying to point at for women. Again, he is trying to point at the reality of sin, that it is seductive and that it is destructive. Sin doesn't always appear as something that will destroy your life, but it will. Sin runs deep in your life, and it runs wide. It doesn't just affect you, but it affects generations to come in your life. This is why it's so important to pursue putting it to death, as John Owen would say, 
if you don't put sin to death, it will put you to death. More importantly, sin can ruin you. Porn can ruin your life. It can shape and mold how you view relationships with the other sex. It can shape and mold how you view your relationship with your spouse, how you view intimacy. It can ruin how your children look at their spouses and their children's children look at their spouses. Sin is destructive. Alcoholism can ruin your life. It will destroy you and your family. The love of money and security, it may not seem harmless. It may present itself as just a joke of workaholism, but it will destroy you and your family. Sin always destroys. It promises joy, but it delivers pain. It offers life, but always leads to death. And guys, if there's anything that you hear this morning, take heed to that. It is so easy to try to brush sin under the table for us, but it is destructive, and it leads to death. Solomon goes on in verses 27 and 29 to give us a second lesson. He tells us that ultimate purpose and meaning cannot come from our own ingenuity. He asks this rhetorical question, who's responsible for the universal failure to please God? And then he answers it in verse 29. People are. It's not God who ruined the universe. It's people in their sin. God made us upright in the sense of being able to choose right and wrong, and we ruined it. This happened in the creation and fall story between Adam and Eve. Nevertheless, we have all gone our own way. We have all pursued many devices following our parents of Adam and Eve. But this same Hebrew word here, devices, is translated in verse 29, explanation. And in the context of this, Solomon is talking about God's plan. So what we see here is that people, not understanding God's plan, try to explain away how the schemes of the world work. We try to take our own devices, we try to take our own explanations and try to answer why things happen the way they do instead of trusting the wisdom of God, instead of trusting like Job that the rain comes to the just and the unjust, instead of trusting like Job that God gives and God takes away, this is a, a part of his sovereign plan. We cannot pursue a purpose of life from our own ingenuities. And the third thing that Solomon says, and this one shouldn't be a shock to us, is that the reason this world is broken is because of sin. There's a story that is told about G.K. Chesterton, a writer in the early 1900s. A part of the, he was a part of this famous club called the Inklings that included C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. He was once asked to write in the Times of London answering the question, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton his answer is just a short sentence. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. His answer is very biblical. Our reality is that no one is righteous, as Solomon has already told us, because sin has permeated all of mankind. And sin hasn't just permeated all of mankind. It has fractured this world, as Romans 8 tells us. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, death 
came to this world. What kind of death? I'm glad that you asked that question. Augustine goes on to say, if it be asked what death would be given, bodily, spiritually, or the second death, which is eternal and separated from God, we should answer, it was all. And this is true. God shows us from the Bible that the first part where our body returns to the ground, we are separated and our very being is condemned against God. The second part of the death where the soul loses its separation from God, we die and we're dead to him. And finally, that ultimate death, the last death of eternity follows. Guys, sin leads to death. And death is the consequence of rebellion against a God who created all things. Paul tells us in Romans 6, the wages of our sin is death. And this is what it looks like. This is what's wrong with the world. Now, this may not have been the answer that Solomon was looking for in his quest for the meaning of life. To answer the question, is there life before death? But don't these two verbs, I'm sorry, don't these two verses teach us a greater wisdom about ourselves, about the world around us? Is this not the starting place for our true situation in life? It's the doctrine of total depravity. It's the understanding that the fall affected both mankind and creation, and sin permeates to the core all of it. It grips our nature, it affects our body, it affects our minds, our thinking, our desires, our wills. It recognizes that the nature of man is not inherently good, but sinful and in needing of a savior. Guys, if our need for reconciliation to God was an economic one. What we, what we would need is more economics. What we'd need is more people that are good with business and money. If our need to be reconciled back to God was psychology, then what we would need would be more counselors. If our need ultimately was rooted in some type of medical problem, then we would need more doctors and nurses and hospitals but this is not our root need. Our basic and most serious need is to be reconciled back to God. And this is what Solomon is telling us. He's telling us that there is a God who now stands against us and announces death upon us because of our willful rebellion against him. And our most desired, rooted need is to be reconciled back to him. And the only way that that is going to happen is through a Savior who stands in our place. Guys, we cannot make sense of the Bible until we've made sense of what the Bible says our need is. If you can't come to grips with what the Bible's analysis of our problem is, we can't come to grips with what its solution is as well. The ultimate problem is our alienation from God because of sin, because of the fall, and what we need most is reconciliation to him. But thankfully, Thankfully, we see in the Bible that the story doesn't stop after creation and fall. From Genesis 3.15 all the way until the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, there are promises to us that one would come to stand in our place. If you read through the Old Testament and see things like the law and the sacrifices, men like Abraham and Moses and Noah, when you see things like the flood, you see prophets and uh, the Levitical priesthood, you see the uh, 
exodus with the, uh, from the Egyptians. These are pictures or shadows, as Hebrews would show us, shadows of the reality of what was to come in Jesus. The second Adam, as Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust, and the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you this mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our solution, Christ. He is the wisdom and righteousness that we need that is outside of ourselves. He is the only way that we can find purpose and meaning in this life, and he is the only solution to be reconciled back to God. And so to close out this morning and answer the question Solomon poses from Chapter 6, verse 12, what is good for a man while he lives? Well, my answer is to embrace these three L's of life. In light of Christ's finished work on the cross and the resurrection of the grave. And how do we do this? We do this in fixing our eyes on him. We understand that life doesn't make sense, that things change, that things uh, we cannot control, but the one steadfast thing in this world, in, in all of eternity, is Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. We can hold our hope to this. When we understand that life has its limitations, and when we pursue wisdom and righteousness, we recognize that this is coming only from Christ, who is the wisdom and righteousness of God, and we lean into that. And how we govern our lives in this world is that we, through the power of Christ, put sin to death that our ultimate purpose is found in him and him alone, that we live to glorify him and to be satisfied in him forever. And the reason that the world is this way, we understand, is because of sin. And even though sin still permeates this world, we can have hope that we live as believers in the already but not yet. That Christ has come and brought us victory over sin and over death. And that one day we can hold hope in that he will return. And when he returns, all of it will be defeated. And that we will be with him for eternity. As the old hymn says, when we've been there for 10,000 years, bright, shining like a sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. This is the reality that we can live in and hold our hope in because Christ is the solution to the problem that we have. And guys, my hope is that you would hold fast 
hold fast in this life, hold fast in and out of season in this truth, whether it's the pandemic or whether it is the joy that God blesses you, hold on to this truth because this is where you find joy. This is where you find life. This is where you find true satisfaction. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. And we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy to us. We praise you that you have made a way to reconcile us back to yourself in Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that we would live in such a way that pursues this true knowledge of God so that we can live righteously and with great wisdom, keeping our eyes fixed on you. Humble us, Lord. Humble us to recognize that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, that things in life don't seem to be fair, but Lord, that we can trust in you who is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. We praise you for this truth. Help it root us in the knowledge of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at